praise the Lord. He is a great, great God. And I believe what we'll look at today will reinforce uh, that song. How great our God, the Lord Jesus, is. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Mark's Gospel, chapter number 14. and Look at verse number 12. We're going to, throughout the message, we'll read down through verse number 46. But I want to kind of skip through an initial reading to give you kind of the setting of what we're going to be talking about this morning. We've been looking at the days of Jesus' passion, the Passion Week. And we started out with a day of declaration. How that Jesus on that first day, Palm Sunday, He came into Jerusalem and in doing so in such a fashion, He declared Himself to be Messiah, to be the one true God. We looked at the next day, Uh, the week before last, and how we looked at a day of investigation. That following day, Jesus came in and he looked to the fig tree for fruit that was not there. And then after that, he went into the temple and looked for religious fruit, true fruit of the true religion, and found none. He found a crowded outer court. Uh, that was filled with the din of money changers and swindlers, the sound of animals which was not to be in that outer court. And that's when Jesus cleansed the temple. And we, we looked at that and talked about the, in, the inspection of our own heart. Is, is there just a form of religion, a form of reality of Christianity, or there is, is there true Christian faith within our hearts? Last week, we looked at a, a day of confrontation. How that Jesus, on that particular day, which I believe might be uh, Tuesday, uh, how that there was a lot of things Jesus taught. But it was best represented in that parable of the wicked renters. And how that Jesus was showing their plan to kill the Lord Jesus. And in that, we, we looked at a confrontation between ourselves and the gospel. For any gospel situation, for anybody to be saved, there has to be a confrontation. You have to see that you're going in the wrong direction and that you're in a head-on collision with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must turn and repent. And God was revealing that through that particular parable. Well, today we look at a day of anticipation. As we go through these accounts, I'm sure you're going in your mind Sunday Monday, Tuesday, as we go through, you will realize that there may be as many as one to two days in which there's nothing written. There, there, I believe there is maybe a day in which there was nothing. It was a complete silence in the scripture as to what Jesus did that day. Now, for my own personal uh, belief, I believe that this day before us may well be... Uh, Thursday or even Wednesday uh, because of the timing of the resurrection it being on the first day of the week because of Jesus' prophecy three days and three nights I don't necessarily believe in a Friday uh, Good Friday uh, death of Jesus more like Thursday and so I, I, but, but regardless of that we know that this is yet the day before the crucifixion of Jesus because of all that takes place. And we're going to look at that in this day of anticipation. Mark 14, and look with me 
at verse number 12. Now we're going to skip down through. We'll look at these closer as we go through the message. But I want to hit three highlights from this day. And I believe that they speak to us of that in anticipation. Look with me at verse number 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go to and prepare that, the, that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and said to them, Go ye into the city, and there, uh, there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you to a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So Jesus is giving instruction starting in verse number 12 where they will eat the Passover. In verse number 22 through 26 we see Jesus here in the Lord's Supper, in that upper room. We're going to look closer at that in a minute, but that's where he takes the bread and the cup, and they eat that together. And Jesus has very important words to say then. Then, picking up in verse number 32, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be sore amazed, to be very heavy. And, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So there, Jesus is in that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we go over after that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go with me to verse number 43. And immediate, while, while, immediately while he spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, with him again. Uh, and, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth a straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. There we have three different scenes. And in each one, I believe there is a statement of anticipation. An anticipation of the cross of Calvary. And so let's look at this day together and glean truth from it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and would work in our hearts. God, I pray that you would take our minds backwards to this eve of Jesus' execution on the cross. And that you would show us in this anticipation what Jesus endured. What love that he showed for us. What compassion that he has for us. God, I pray that also we would see his humanity. How the deep dread of what is about to take place overcame it and yet he endured for us 
God, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. On April 27, 2011, a massive Category 4 tornado cut through the mountains of northwest Georgia, leveling everything in its path. I'm sure as I begin to relate to you those events in April of 2011, your mind's eye immediately, being in this area, immediately goes back to the scenes of destruction in this area. Many lives were lost, homes and businesses were destroyed. Even to this day, when you drive through Trenton, there is still the legacy. You can still still see the scars of where that tornado ripped through this mountain, down the valley, and over Lookout Mountain as well. The path that tornado cut is left like a scar on the landscape of our area. The scenes of its destruction on the television uh, from Trenton and Ringo are seared into our minds. Of course, we're in late March, coming up late March now. And next month will mark the 11th anniversary of that storm's devastation. And I don't know if you've noticed it, Whatever the reasoning, it seems like April and May have become some, some terrible tornado type weather. And every time we draw closer to that end of April, when that tornado hit, there is a sense of dread in my own heart. As we see storm clouds come in, as we anticipate bad weather, there is a, 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 a sense of dread. Weather, weather patterns change, springtime storms pop up, and every time I experience an, a fearful anticipation as the storms appear on the horizon, I start to brace myself for the worst. You know, each day as Jesus goes through this week called His Passion, there is a sense in which He is drawing closer and closer to a devastating storm for which he was sent on this earth to endure. This day that we look at today is the day just prior uh, to that day uh, which Jesus will die. And, and this day is marked, uh, he's right here on the edge of suffering and shame, of humiliation and pain. And so this is what Jesus came to this earth for. In, in several instances in the Gospels, you remember Jesus saying, Mine hour is not yet come. Well, this is His hour. The hour has come for Jesus' uh, destiny. What He was born on this earth to do. This day marks three events in the life of Jesus. The, the, the eating of the Lord's Supper in the upper room. The, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas Iscariot. And in each case, Jesus expresses a sense of anticipation about what is to befall Him. You know, oftentimes, if you'll notice in dram dramatic presentations, it's not the actual event that takes place that brings the most horror or dread. It is the anticipation leading up to the climactic event that really eats and gnaws at us. 
Have you ever felt that same thing? Maybe you're facing a surgery. Maybe you're facing a a decision that is very difficult, a task that is nigh unto impossible in front of you. And those days of anticipation fill your heart with fear and dread. You see, that's what Jesus is experiencing on this day. And He seems to say it again and again and again. And in each of these scenes, there are volumes that could be written. Again, like like the other day that we talked about. So many things Jesus said. We could go on and on for weeks and weeks about everything Jesus said. The same is true with this day. We could spend a full hour in that upper room dinner, in that meal together, that upper room supper. We could talk about the Garden of Gethsemane for a year. We could go on and on about what took place in that garden. We could spend many weeks on the betrayal of Judas. We could go in depth in all of these aspects. But combining all four gospel accounts, these three scenes alone make up a combined total of 290 verses. That's a lot of content in just one hour. And there I say in one part of maybe a six-hour period of divine writ is in here in 290-something verses. So we can't cover everything. But for a few moments, I want us to walk briskly through these scenes with Jesus on this day of anticipation. And in doing so, it will teach us eternally valuable lessons about the gospel. You see, how Jesus dealt with this anticipation these moments that he is facing the cross, that he's, he's coming hours, just, just a few hours away from the torturous events from Pilate's Hall to the crucifixion on Calvary. How he deals with that will teach us eternally valuable truths about the gospel. Truths that we desperately need. We need our cold hearts To be warmed by by what Jesus went through for us. That's why we get cold. That's why we get distant from the Lord. It's because our hearts, our memory so fails us when it comes to remembering just all that Jesus endured. Each and every one of us can understand the importance of this day of anticipation by looking at three scenes presented in this one chapter. Number one, I want you to see in the first scene, we see a symbolic banquet. In verse 12 through 26, we see a symbolic banquet. So this day, uh, this day starts with a question of preparation. We don't have much from earlier in that day, but we do have this question that uh, that comes up in verse number 12 where his disciples were asking, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? You see, Jesus was asked where he was planning on having this meal. This was uh, part of their faith, part of their uh, Jewish tradition, part of their uh, commanded ritual that they are to experience year after year. And so they're asking Jesus, when, where is he going to have this? This time of Passover, it was a commemoration of the deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian bondage. Uh, 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 a great deal of preparation was to be made for this meal. Matter of fact, uh, there would be hours and hours spent 
prior to that event, just in preparation for the meal. For example, the houses. The houses where the meal was to be celebrated were to be purged of all leaven. How would you like that kind of house cleaning before you had a meal? You had to go through every part of the house to make sure there was no leaven, no representation of that which puffeth up. Oftentimes, leaven is a type of sin. This is a cleansing of the whole house. It's to have no leaven in this bread. No leaven were to make its way into this meal. Also, uh, then a lamb had to be chosen for the meal. Of course, you know Jewish tradition how that the lamb had to be set aside for 14 days going all the way back to the night of the Passover. The lamb had to be set aside two weeks in advance, 14 days. After that, it had to be inspected. It had to be looked at. It had to be uh, gone through this inspection process. Then it had to be had to have the blood drained and, the, and, and dissected in a certain way. Well, every Jew in that day and time had to take that animal to the temple. To be inspected there at the temple, the animal uh, would be drained of its blood. It would be dissected. The, uh, the entrails and, and all of the, uh, the inner parts of the animal would be placed on the, on the altar, the brazen altar to be burned. And the remaining portion of the animal that is edible would be given back to the worshiper and they were to take it home. Now remember, in Jerusalem now, remember we talked about this week, the population swelled to millions of people by this time. All of them doing the same exact thing. Matter of fact, years ago I heard a message uh, uh, on the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron. The Kidron Brook is found all through the Old Testament. It's a brook that ran near the temple, uh, near the temple itself. And there is where they would have thrown out all of the excess that they uh, from the, 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 the cleanings from the floor of all the butchery of the animal. They would throw that into that stream. And so when Jesus walked across the brook Kidron on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, it would flowed with blood. Can you imagine millions of millions of millions of people doing sacrifice after sacrifice? It is a time-consuming process. So the animal was then taken home. Then it had to be roasted a particular way for the Passover meal. There were millions of Jews uh, in Jerusalem and no doubt hundreds of thousands of lambs were offered. Again, this is a time-consuming process. And Jesus sent His disciples to find a room already prepared. You see... Jesus, in his anticipation, in his omniscience, however he did this, set us, uh, sent his disciples to find a room in which all of this had been prepared, already ready for the Passover meal. But what would take place in that room would be radically different than ever has been witnessed before. Because in that upper room, Jesus would institute a commemoration meal in which He Himself is the Lamb. We don't have a Lamb at our Lord's Supper. You want to know why? Because Jesus is our Lamb. He's the one that died in our place. We have the bread and we have the cup, the wine, but we have no Lamb because Jesus is our Lamb. He died for us. Um, this meal impacts us still today. Matter of fact, we celebrated it not too long ago. Now, 
in this meal, I want us to see death's brutality. Jesus said in verse 22, as, he, as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Jesus took the bread and cup and in doing so, he began to reveal what would take place in a matter of hours. More than likely, they puzzled over his statement, this is my body. First, he took the unleavened bread and entreated them to eat, for this is his body. Luke's gospel adds the words, given for you. Jesus is indicating that his body will be a sacrifice for them in their stead. Luke's gospel adds that in the Apostle Paul's account, no doubt given to him directly from the other apostles, the words broken are added to it. So here we glean these together. This is my body broken and given for you. This is a foreshadow. Jesus is handing them this bread and telling them what's about to take place. He's done that kind of thing many times in his gospel ministry. Jesus was omniscient. He could see all that which lie ahead of him. And so here he is telling them what would take place. It's foreshadowing of the giving of his body on the cross. His human form was beaten and battered during the agonies of the cross. Just like that bread is crushed and broken and beaten, passed through the fire. It is so the same is with Jesus. He was broken and it pictures the broken body of Jesus. Then he took a cup and offering it. Look what he said in verse uh, number 23. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said in verse 24, he said to them, This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus then took the cup offering it to his disciples with the words, this is my blood that is shed. Notice the word shed there. The word shed does not mean uh, to bleed like a finger prick. You know, uh, they used to kill me as a kid. I know it was coming. I hated when they pricked my finger. You know, they take that little bit of blood and they put that thing on a snap and it would prick your finger. That's not what this word shed mean, uh, a finger prick. Uh, It was an emptying of life's blood, much like the lamb in the temple. It would be a complete emptying of the blood. A pouring forth is what the word indicates. This is an emptying of his life's blood, much like that lamb that was shed. Jesus' blood would not just be a finger prick. It would be a life. So much blood, it would drain his life. This bread and cup pictured all that Christ would give in, in the coming hours through the fists that pummeled His cheeks, through the scourge across His back, through the crown of thorns upon His brow, through the nails uh, that pierced His hands and feet, through the spear that lanced His side, the brutality that is represented in this supper. It is all being foreshadowed 
as he hands them that bread in that cup, he is telling them, I'm going to the cross on your behalf. I'm going to give my life, my body for your sustenance, for your life eternal. I'm going to give my blood for your rightness before God, your redemption in, in himself. Jesus' death, this, this meal, this symbolic meal gives us a picture of his death's brutality. But then also, we look at his death's benefactors. Do not overlook, overlook the fact that Jesus took this bread and this cup and handed it to his disciples. This bread and cup that represented the brutality of all that he would endure on the cross given to and was, with the, and was to be the benefit of his disciples. What to Jesus symbolized his death Here's his body being broken. Here's his blood being shed. What to him was death to his disciples was life. His, their life, their eternal uh, salvation, deliverance is represented in these items. Jesus said in John 6, 53 and 54, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, that is not to say that I believe a cracker and some wine contain in themselves eternal life, but the picture is clear. To receive His death, to receive His blood, to take those in by faith, His eternal life is what will raise us up in that last day. But there is, it's a clear indication that Jesus is pointing to this moment. This will be life for them. This will be eternal life for them. The flesh of which He speaks is His body on the cross. The blood of which He speaks is the blood He shed on the cross. The consumption of each is a belief and trust that what took place on the cross was personal atonement for one's own sin. Again, a cup does not save. A cracker does not save. But they are symbols of what does. To receive Jesus' body as my sacrifice for sin. To receive His blood as my atoning blood be received in us, that is what's represented in those words. This meal is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Romans 5.8 makes it clear, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His body was broken for me. His, his life, His blood was shed for me. I think about that old hymn that many of us no doubt have sang. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not my Lord was crucified. Crucified knowing not it was for me. He died on Calvary. All those years that I wandered away from Him. That I gave no thought to what He had done for me. He still did it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His body and His blood. You and I that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that sit here today, are benefactors, beneficiaries of His brutal death 
on the cross. This meal is an anticipation of what would take place. For us, it's all in the past. But for Jesus in this moment, marked an anticipation of what lay ahead. A symbolic banquet. Also, next we see in the next scene a searing burden. Look at verse 27. Uh, it goes from verses 27 down through 42. We'll pick up uh, next on verse number 32. Look what he says. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith uh, to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he said, Then my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. After this significant meal, it says in verse number 26, go back with 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives with this, this hymn that is uh, traditionally sung at the Passover. His psalms uh, are represented by the Psalms 113 to 118 and are known as the Hallel. Oftentimes they're supposed to be sung in the ascent up to Jerusalem to worship God. But it's, it's traditionally sung. And listen to particularly Psalm 118, verse 22 through 29. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, and send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know if you caught it, but there are echoes what we've been hearing all week in that psalm. You see, these words point us to Jesus. Even the hymn, the hymns that they sung pointed to Jesus. Now our text takes a darker turn in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice first of all, he experienced unimaginable sorrow. Unimaginable sorrow. After this meal, he and his disciples make their way in the evening darkness to the garden at just outside Jerusalem. Now, no gardens were allowed inside the city of Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem is a walled city, has walls along the outside. And so no gardens were allowed in the city for fear that fertilizer on the ground would contaminate the sacred soil. So enclosed gardens would be owned by people, wealthy people, outside of the city walls. And no doubt Jesus had been given permission by some wealthy landowner who, who had this garden called Gethsemane. And so Jesus often resorted to that garden, that olive, olive garden. Yeah, the name 
the name of this place, like I said, was Garden of Gethsemane, which means the olive press or the place of the pressing. It was a place known for the crushing of the olive to extract the precious oil. You know how the grapes were done. They would be stomped. But the olive is a little bit different. They would have a press, uh, something that would go down and they would press and crush the olives to bring out the oil from inside. You know, this is a fitting name for a place where Jesus would experience the crushing sorrow of Golgotha's anticipation. As they entered the garden, He instructed His disciples to wait and then others to pray and shared with Him that His soul was exceeding sorrowful. Did you catch that? He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Unto death tarry ye here and watch. In the loneliness of prayer, Jesus cast Himself on the ground. So verse 35, here Jesus, He leaves Peter, James, and John, and He goes a little further and falls down on the ground in prayer. The toll of the week's activities begin to wear on Jesus. You think about what He's been through. He's been through the... The adoration, the adorations of the people on the way in. All the eyes of Jerusalem looking at him. He's come through the confrontations uh, with the uh, confrontations with the scribes and, and Pharisees during the week. The ridicule and, and contempt of the religious establishment. The heartbreak over betrayal. We didn't read into we didn't read this portion, but Jesus he tells his disciples that he'll be betrayed at this meal in the upper room, and so he he's he's dealing with the heartbreak a break of a betrayal by a trusted disciple. His lack of rest due to nights of prayer. All of this has taken a toll on his body till the emotion of this moment caused ruby red drops of blood to form through the pores of his. Skin, You know as well as I do, uh, Scripture tells us that, that Jesus' sweat as He prayed in this Garden of Gethsemane, His sweat became as dr great drops of blood. You, I, I think I've shared this before, but that is a distinct medical condition under which someone is in such, such duress that the pores, that the small uh, uh, vessels near the skin begin to break open and, and blood begins to seep out the sweat pores of the body and it looks as though the body is sweating blood. This is a physiological condition that can take place to human beings. And Jesus here, He is, he is experiencing that in the garden. Why? Why is, why is this happening? Well, listen, I'm not going to pretend to know all that's going on in this moment. What is taking place and, and reflect upon the unsearchable realities of Christ's humanity and His deity. Because if there's ever a moment in which there seems to be uh, this, this uh, uh, conundrum, this, this dichotomy inside of Him between His, his divinity and His humanity. It's here in this garden. There are things He says that we cannot possibly fathom or understand what He's talking about here as He talks to His Father. Jesus knew though full well the necessity of His death on the cross. 
His death alone was the only way to satisfy the demands of God's law. And yet in this moment, in verse number 36, peering into the cup of sin and shame of which he had never known for one moment experienced caused him to shrink back and plead with his father to avoid. Think about that moment. He had never known a moment of disunity with his heavenly father and here faced with the certainty of having his father turn his back Darken, the, darken his, uh, his visage toward his son. Jesus shrinks back and said, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus in this moment went down into the depths of mortal pain, of mental anguish, and of divine rejection on the cross. Why? For you and for me. Because of His love for us. In the garden, He peered into the cesspool of sin and prayed, Not my will, not what I want, but what you want. Notice second of all, He expressed unconditional surrender. And that's what I want to get back to His prayer. Yet He prayed, not my will, but what you want be done. As difficult and as painful a road that lay ahead, which we cannot possibly fathom. Jesus relented to the will of God. Thy will be done. Because the wisdom of God prevails over the ability of God. Could God have saved His Son? Yes. Jesus Himself told Peter, and we'll talk about this in a moment, God, I could call for 10,000 angels to come and rescue me. Know you not that I could call the angels from heaven to deliver me? He could have. God could have delivered him. But the wisdom of God prevailed over the ability of God. God's will was that Jesus suffer and die on the cross in our stead. The will of the Father was that His only begotten Son that the will of the Father was that His only begotten Son turned back the cup of suffering and drink every drop of our sin. Jesus became sin for us on that cross. Every unimaginable, grotesque, wicked, fathomless, uh, uh, black, dark sin that we could possibly conjure in our minds that have been that that man has participated in poured out on Jesus. On the cross of Calvary. This is the only way for sinners to be forgiven. This is the only way for you to enter into justification. Into glorification. Into forgiveness of sin. Is for Jesus to turn back this cup of sin. Through His suffering on the cross... It is become our salvation. In His death we find deliverance. In His cross we find redemption. All this in anticipation of of Jesus here in this garden. Now, we see a symbolic banquet, a searing burden. Thirdly and lastly, a subtle betrayal. A subtle betrayal. Look at verse 43. Immediately while He spake, Judah... Uh, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him 
a great multitude with, soldier, of so, with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes the, uh, and, and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are ye come out as, a, as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him. And they all forsook him and fled. Here we see Jesus' subtle betrayal. Jesus would continue praying in that garden of Gethsemane late into the night. Uh, uh, returning to find his disciples sleeping time and time again. You know the story of how that Jesus prayed three times. He went and every time he came back he found his disciples asleep. The mental anguish of the moment was so, uh, was so incensed that, that in Luke uh, 22-43 it tells us that an angelic aid was dispatched to strengthen Jesus for what lay ahead. In Mark's gospel, we find Jesus with resolve announces to his disciples that his betrayer is at hand. Look with me in verse number 41. And he cometh the third time and saith to them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. So Jesus knew the betrayer had come. And so he revealed the betrayer. And in the garden, his identity was made known to them. They didn't realize who the betrayer was until this moment in the garden. First of all, we see the arrest made. Although not yet revealed to his disciples, Jesus had already identified the betrayer at the upper room supper when he whispered to him in John 13, 27, that thou doest, do quickly. Of course, you remember how that Judas got up from the table and went to Jesus, and Jesus whispered in his ear, What thou doest, do quickly. He knew that Judas was the betrayer. In a prearranged plan, as we see in the scripture, Judas arrives at the garden with a garrison of soldiers and a subtle plan of identifying the object of their arrest. You see, they didn't have pictures, they didn't have wanted posters, posters with Jesus' face on it. So they need to make sure that in the, in the darkness of the scene, by the light of torches, they got the right guy. And so Judas says, I'll go up to the one that you're to arrest and I will kiss him. Matthew 26, 15 tells us that an arrangement had been made that Judas would betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. After leaving the upper room, uh, on what the other disciples would have supposed to be an errand. Judas, G Judas notified the religious leaders where Jesus would be. And the garrison of guards was summoned and Judas led the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Judas knew exactly where Jesus goes. Where he, where he went to, resorted to in the evening, the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew exactly where to go. And so by a flicker of torchlight, 
Jesus and the eleven met Judas. Judas steps forward, approaches of the Lord Jesus, approaching, saying, Hail, Master! He approached Jesus and with a title of honor, a title of significance. Listen to the words of his mouth. Master, Master. In other words, Hail, Master. He's giving him all kinds of outward praise. He's making sure that no difference can be told about what he's about to do. He's given an outward show. He had given them, in verse 44, had given them a sign that he would kiss the one who they were to place under arrest. Verse 49 tells us that this kiss here, in verse number 40, uh, 49, uh, excuse me, uh, verse, uh, verse number 49 tells us that this kiss was not merely customary uh, 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 Eastern greeting, but this was a passionate kiss. This was a kiss to indicate love to the Master. This was a kiss on the cheek that would indicate, it's not a formality you've seen in the Middle East, they'll kind of do this and do that or whatever when they come to, this was more of a kiss of embrace, of love for the Lord Jesus. Boy, He's playing it out, isn't He? He's really making a farce of His uh, of his love or his admiration for Jesus when he had betrayed him. Oh, the hypocrisy of this action. In his greeting and in his gesture, he portrayed himself to be devoted to the Savior, but in his heart, he had sold the Son of God for a pocket full of change. He had betrayed, he was betrayed by one he had loved and trusted. You remember that Judas was the one that carried the purse. The one that carried the money. He was the most trusted of the disciples. And yet he betrayed the Lord Jesus. A while back I was listening to an audio book about a Chinese Christian that was severely persecuted by the communists in China. He was tortured, beaten. His legs were broken in an attempt to get him to divulge the whereabouts of other Christians and other house churches. In his pain and agony, he would sing this little Chinese song that I think we ought to sing in our churches today. I will not be a Judas. I will not betray my Lord is the portion of that song that he would sing. I will not be a Judas. I will not betray my Lord. How many times are we confronted with moments in which we, we betray the Lord Jesus? We tut tut. We click our tongues at Judas and how awful. But how many times have we betrayed him? How many times have we put on airs of a facade of religious loyalty to Jesus when in reality we betrayed him in subtle manners? No, I will not, be, I will not betray the Lord Jesus. The arrest that was made, of course, Jesus was immediately arrested. But I want you to notice something. The authority maintained. The authority maintained. What took place then was a burst of action. Of course, when they arrested Jesus, Peter brought out a sword and began to hack away at those nearby. Uh, a burst of activity. Well, first of all, what took place was a burst of activity as Jesus presents Himself to these men as they ask for Him. And they responded, uh, Jesus asked, who are you looking for? And they responded, Jesus of Nazareth. To which Jesus responded, this is John's version. We go to, back to look in the Gospel of John. In John's version uh, of the events, Jesus 
uh, says, I am He, and I don't know if you know that passage of Scripture, but uh, when He says that, every one of those soldiers, hundreds of them, fell backwards in that moment. Then they laid hold of Jesus. I believe that is an exercise in showing who still maintained authority. Had Jesus, Jesus was under no duress to be arrested. They could not have possibly arrested Him had He not willingly allowed Himself to be taken by Him. He had such power in His Word that He sent those soldiers backwards. Peter then, he drew a sword intending to crush the head of the high priest, but instead he cut off the servant's ear. Jesus reaches down and places the ear back on the servant with miraculous power. And He rebukes Peter by saying in Matthew 26, 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? An army from heaven? Listen. By the falling down of the soldiers at the voice of Jesus, by Jesus' own testimony that He could call legions of angels from heaven, I want you to see this. That Jesus' authority was completely maintained. At not one moment was Jesus taken unawares. Was Jesus taken against His will? I tell you these things for you to know that Jesus was not taken uh, outside of His own will. That He was not swept up unwillingly. That's what a lot of people try to say. Well, Jesus was a revolutionary that was kind of swept up into a, a movement and got Himself killed. That is not it at all. Jesus was not on a rapid river, uh, uh, loose and not in control. No, He's in complete control of all events that, taken, that were taking place. He did not fall into an uncontrollable mob of religious zealots. No, these soldiers uh, arrived and they were no match for Jesus' power and ability. They were, all, they were only allowed to apprehend Him at the willingness of the Son of God. Jesus maintained complete authority in this moment of seeming chaos. He maintains the same control today over your life, over my life. When they seem out of control, careening down a path, when we seem to be at the mercy of the world, the flesh, and the devil, Jesus is still in control, complete control. I was thinking uh, along these lines uh, about that passage where where Jesus, uh, He chastises His disciples after one of those stormy uh, lake events, saying, Oh ye of little faith, why have you doubted? Why would you doubt? That's the thing with us. Why would we doubt? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Take that question from the lips of Jesus and ask yourself, when you're doubting circumstances that seem out of control, has Jesus ever given us a reason to doubt Him? Has Jesus ever given us a reason not to trust Him? Has He ever faltered in our, in our relationship with Him? Has He ever failed? Has He ever proven to be faithful to us? We should not doubt. We should trust Him. Have faith in our God. He still maintains 
control of every situation. No matter what it appears on the outside, Jesus is firmly in control. When we look at this day, we realize that in every circumstance, Jesus was anticipating what would come. At the meal, He made it plain. My body's going to be broken. My blood will be shed. In the garden, He made it clear that He was anticipating the cup. The cup of anguish and pain and suffering at the hands of the Romans, at the, at the accusation of the Jews and our sin. Don't you put the blame on the Jews and the Romans alone. It's with us. The, the guilt lies with us as well. Jesus is anticipating that. He's anticipating the arrest in the kiss of, of Judas. Ah, my, my betrayer is at hand. Let's all stand. My betrayer is at hand. Let's, let's stand. I was talking about them, but you go ahead and stand. Amen. I was talking about them. As they said, go ahead and stand up. Amen. Listen, I need to close and get out of here. The truth of the matter is, Jesus realized every anticipating moment. And what does that mean for us? Nothing came by surprise. And that He did all this for us. As, uh, as I was thinking this morning, there was a, an old hymn, 1944, published by a woman uh, by the name of Catherine Kelly. This is the point of this message. Listen closely. Why would we preach on these things? Jesus' anticipation. Why are we so focused on His anticipation at the table and in the garden and in with His betrayer? Why are we so focused? Kelly, Catherine Kelly sums it up in the course of her hymn. Oh, help me to understand, Lord. Help me to take it in. What it meant for Thee, Thou Holy One, to bear away my sin. That's what this is all about. This whole scene, this whole message is for us to go back to Calvary and see through the eyes of Scripture what Jesus did for us when He took on our sin on His behalf. Oh Jesus, help us to fall more deeply in love with the Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God I pray, I pray that You would help us to look and reflect on these scenes Scenes that indicate that you knew full well what lay ahead. You knew every lash, every nail, every thorn that would pierce your brow. And yet you carried on, willingly, in complete authoritative control. You, you carried on to that rendezvous with the cross. God, I pray that our hearts would fall before you and relinquish our love, pour out our love toward you, in that what you have done, done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May I live a life more devoted to you than ever before by seeing what you did for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.